You're listening to Why Talk Climate, an expert podcast series on mobilizing youth for climate action, produced and directed by BCCIC Climate Change. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the inaugural episode of BCCIC's Why Talk Climate podcast. This week, we are talking about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and we are also taking the time to introduce BCCIC's Climate Change Branch. We'd like to begin by introducing ourselves. My name is Simran Sarai, and I'm a second-year environmental studies student at Simon Fraser University. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone's doing well during these times of uncertainty. My name is Bo Min, and I'm a criminology and international studies major, also from Simon Fraser University. Bowman and I are a part of the British Columbia Council for International Cooperation's Climate Change Division, which is led by a group of committed youth under 25 years old who are passionate about youth engagement and climate action. As one of the most prominent youth-led and youth-driven initiatives in the international climate action space, BCCIC's continued success has proved that young people have the capacity to manage long-term multi-stakeholder projects. We would like to take a moment to welcome our guest, Jeffrey, who has worked as a climate policy analyst and negotiator. He has worked as an NGO observer at the UN Climate Change Conference representing environmental organizations since 2017, and is currently working as a coordinator for the Climate Multilateral Affairs Division at BCCIC. Thanks for coming, Jeffrey. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you to you both. Awesome. Though hopefully we can meet in person soon, I'm very happy to, well, meet you here online. Let's get started. Simran, what's the first question we have today? So Jeffrey, to start off today, we just wanted to talk to you about your involvement with BCCIC. Our first question is, what have you learned through your experience observing and negotiating at UN climate change conferences about the direction of humanity in tackling the climate change crisis? Well, uh, first of all, great to be here and uh, great talking to you too and excited to uh, about this uh, interview. Um, so I've been working in the UN climate change negotiation sphere for around three to four years. Um, I started off as a youth delegate, uh, just observing conferences and then um, worked as working group members trying to influence some of the negotiations. To summarize my experience, it would be probably three words, um, challenging, but hopeful. Um, it, the negotiation on the international sphere is never easy, especially when you're negotiating with 197 countries, uh, covering a wide range of different economic and social level, and uh, you're touching upon a very complex issue such as climate change. Um, international progress is never easy, and uh, multilateral negotiations always tends to be chaotic. There are many dedicated people inside and outside of the negotiation centers who are fighting for a better world uh, through inclusive and ambitious climate action. The Paris Agreement um, charted a new path for multilateral climate uh, cooperation uh, since this is the last agreement that we will have on climate change. What's different about Paris Agreement is it has a very specific pledge and review process we call it up uh, process, which basically means a country will present their climate targets every five years. And the Paris Agreement also mandates the countries to present a more ambitious and stronger climate target in the subsequent climate plan. Um, so after Paris Agreement, there will be no other climate agreement in the world, and this is our only chance of 
uh, fighting for 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. Um, so this is this presents a very innovative way of to, uh, of most lateral climate cooperation, um, and um, there are a lot of challenges ahead. But the very fact that we got an agreement on the international level that's agreed upon by virtually all countries in the world is itself an achievement, and it's a cause for celebration. That's a really good answer to that question, and it's nice that you mentioned the Paris Agreement, especially with the U.S. election. And just days before the election, President Trump decided to pull out, and now we have a new vice president, president-elect. So hopefully, moving forward, um, the hope is that they will come back to that Paris Agreement and continue to fight for a better world in terms of climate change. And I think Bowman has our next question for you. Yeah, our next question is about the SDG 13 itself, which is climate change. So SDGs, for those who are unaware, stands for the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals, and they are meant to achieve a better and a more sustainable future for all. These are not mutually exclusive, they affect one another and are interlinked. These interlinkages can also be seen in climate change we experience today. What would you say are the top three SDGs that are affected by or affect SDG 13? You are absolutely correct to point out that all the SDGs are interconnected, and especially with the climate change one, SDG 13. Um, in our uh, shadow reports on the progress of Canada's achievements on the SDGs, BCCIC's reports specifically pointed out all the inter uh, the cross-cutting themes, which one of them is climate change, that all levels of governments must consider climate impacts prior to policy implementation because climate change is such a complex issue that affects literally every sector of our society. But for myself, the, the three most notable SDGs that will be affected by climate change uh, would be biodiversity ones, so SDG 14 and 15, life underwater as well as life on land. Um, we know from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that 70 to 90% of the coral reefs will be extinct basically, under a, a 1.5 degree Celsius pathway. And that number would be 99%. So basically a massive extinction event for all coral reefs around the world if we reach two degrees Celsius warming above pre-industrial level. Um, on land, out of the 105,000 species surveyed by the IPCC, we found that 6% of insects, 8% of plants, and 4% of vertebrate will lose their climatically determined geographical habitats. And that number will double if we reach a two degree Celsius warming above pre-industrial level. Um, and that is a very crucial issue for all of us because we will be losing a vast amount of biodiversity in our world as well as uh, present a major disturbance to uh, the natural ecosystem that sustain our entire uh, life on earth. Uh, which brings us to the second SDG that I want to mention, which is SDG 3, uh, Good Health and Well-Being. Uh, through the, the proximity of us with wild animals, uh, due to the loss of biodiversity and their natural habitat, will bring us closer or, or bring, bring us into more contact with wild animals, which may carry zoonotic infectious disease such as COVID-19, which we are in right now. And a rise of 0.5 degrees Celsius worldwide will increase the uh, number of infectious mosquitoes 
uh, in the most vulnerable part of the world, such as Latin America, as well as Sub-Saharan Africa, by about 30 to 100%. These mash mosquitoes will carry malaria, uh, West Nile fever, and dengue fever, which will ravage some of the most vulnerable parts of the world that are suffering from war or from uh, famine or from high socioeconomic inequalities. Um, and, you know, we don't have to look very far away for health impacts uh, due to climate change. When we look at Canada, we are facing a major threat from a resurgence of Lyme disease in the northern parts of this country. Because when the temperature rises, the Lyme disease carrying ticks will move upward, up north, uh, because it's, the weather is warmer now. So they could happily live in the northern parts of British Columbia, where they, you know, traditionally hasn't been there. Um, so, you know, remember that next time you go on hiking, remember to, to check for any tick bites. Uh, and Lyme disease is already a major threat in Ontario and Quebec. It will soon become a major threat in BC. So climate impacts are literally everywhere. Um, another kind of impact about climate change on, on our public health is through air pollution. Rising temperature will increase the ozone in our atmosphere, which causing uh, asthma epidemics. At the same time, a warming temperature will cause longer growing season for flowers and pollen producing plants, uh, which is a terrible news for anyone who, who is allergic to pollens and aeroallergens. Uh, um, so yeah, climate change and health is a super interconnected issue and we have to look at both in an uh, interconnected way uh, to figure out what are the future threats of climate change will bring to the public health. Um, and the last goal that I want to mention is gender equality, which is SDG 5. Climate change disproportionately affects uh, women, uh, particularly in developing countries. And uh, one of the most notable examples is in Sub-Saharan Africa where women, and especially girls, are usually responsible for gathering water for the whole family to use early in the morning. Uh, with climate change, they often have to travel way further uh, to find little amount of water uh, to bring back. And that will cause longer traveling time between their home and the water collection area. Um, that will take up precious time for them to uh, enjoy education or to go for other opportunities that are presented to them. Uh, at the same time, women are also underrepresented in politics, uh, which prevents them from fully contributing to climate action. A recent UNDP report shows that communities develop better resilience strategies towards climate change when women are also involved in planning and decision-making. So promoting and strengthening gender equality uh, and uh, equal participation of women in climate action in all levels of governance is crucial for global climate action. Yeah, it's interesting that you pointed out those three because I was also thinking of inequality or SDG 10 to be one of them, as you've already mentioned about the disproportionality of its effects. Climate change affects communities differently in that the most marginalized communities will get the most impact and is getting the most impact right now. I mean, climate migrants, right? Regardless of their choice, they're forced to leave and find a new home. So in a way, when we talk about addressing climate change, a part of it 
should be about how collective action, that includes our own actions, can impact the lives of others, specifically for those that are the most in need. But anyways, I'd really love to hear the three you pointed out. It certainly helps to gain more perspective when we address the issue of climate change, not as an isolated event, but as one that requires comprehensive thought. I'm really glad that you brought up climate refugees. BCCIC's Multilateral Affairs Branch just released a new working paper by our wonderful member, Alea Mohammed on climate refugee, but it's not a traditional climate refugee paper uh, that are focusing on uh, inflow of climate refugee, but to focusing on internal climate migration in Canada. It points to specific case studies in Alberta and BC where forest fires as well as rising uh, flooding events forced people to migrate to other parts uh, of the province or other parts of the country. So we call them forced uh, internal migration. Uh, if you're interested in climate migrant migration inside Canada, be sure to go check it out. Thank you very much. Usually we think of developing countries for these issues, but it's very relevant in the local context as well. Thank you very much for pointing that out. Uh, like Jeffrey and Bowman said, it's important to realize that climate change has impacts on our local communities here in BC, across Canada, and even our neighbors to the south. Like it's not a problem just in Europe or Africa or Asia, it's affecting us here. And that brings us to our next question, which is talking about moving forward, what is it that we hope to see? And so while we're on the topic of SDG 13 and the other sustainable development goals, these SDGs, they involve a global framework of goals and actions. And so by applying this in our local context, what is a policy you think British Columbia or Canada urgently needs to adopt in the fight against climate? Canada's current nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement is highly insufficient. Canada's current commitment is reaching a net zero in 2050, uh, which is incompatible with Canada's perceived leadership in global climate action. The Chinese government just announced that it will reach a carbon peak by 2030 and with the hope of reaching carbon neutrality by 2060. If China could reach carbon neutrality, by 2060. Do you think that Canada's current commitment of reaching net zero by 2050 is sufficient? The scientists from IPCC and the scientists from UN Climate Change will say absolutely not. We need to do better in terms of addressing climate impacts and addressing climate mitigation measures in Canada. And these would look like a commitment to 100% renewable energy by 2035, uh, phasing out coal on the federal level by 2028. The federal government also needs to commit to an increase in the federal carbon pricing benchmark schedule for prices to reach 150 US dollar per ton uh, of CO2 equivalent by 2030, with a contingency that best practices research to be reconsulted in 2025. Um, carbon pricing is absolutely necessary. Uh, as a market mechanism for Canada to reach its current climate targets, but also to go beyond the current uh, commitments. And I'm glad that you're talking about how it's important to have policies that go beyond meeting that commitment. And you're not just trying to, you don't want governments to just aim for whatever the goal is in the Paris Agreement. You want them to be enacting policies because this is, climate change is something we're going to have to worry about for many years past the 
dead, like the deadlines of these policies or the goal dates of these policies. It's here to stick around with us and with future generations. So adopting those policies that are going beyond what is asked of in the Paris Agreement is really important, I think, for our governments and for governments around the world. Absolutely. And just to just also to raise a point that Canada must think about just transition in its fight against climate change. We, a lot of the environmentalist folks would say, let's shut down the pipeline, let's close all the oil refineries in Alberta. But at the same time, we also need to care for the workers that are in these sectors. We need to be able to provide them with a livelihood after our carbon transition. Therefore, a Just Transition Act is absolutely necessary on both the federal as well as the provincial level to ensure that retraining of these former oil workers or adequate compensation for their loss of jobs uh, in the eventual transition to cleaner and more renewable energy. Yeah, thank you for bringing that. That's a very important point that I think a lot of Canadians don't understand or don't think about when talking about climate change. Um, I think Bowman has one final question for you today. Yeah, so, okay, now for our last question that we have for today, which personally is my favorite. Um, what advice do you have for youth looking to get involved in sustainability and climate policy? Youth bring a very energetic energy and presence into the, the global climate change movement. Talking about climate change is nothing new. Climate action is also nothing new. We've been talking about climate change since the 1970s, and we have international agreements since 1992. But youth bring a very particular, a very unique perspective into the global climate action. Uh, for the first time in kind of the environmentalist movement, we are not just talking about the environment or protecting the natural spaces. We're talking about future generations' rights to a healthy and sustainable environment. We're talking about uh, the intergenerational equity that is central in the climate change crisis. Um, further, it is about thinking long-term. Uh, how would our children, how would the next generation of human beings and the next generation of any animals on this planet thrive on this living planet? And I'm, you know, four years ago when I entered the climate action space, not a lot of people that talks about climate change in the world. There is no mention of climate change in the news media. There's no mention of climate change in major political debates. It's not a public policy issue. But everything uh, used climate activists like Greta Thunberg, as well as the other many um, other amazing youth activists like Autumn Peltier from the Wakamatun unceded territory uh, from today's Canada, uh, Helena Golinga from Ecuadorian Amazon, uh, Manny, Mary Copney, the young African-American activist in the US who are all pushing for a more ambitious climate agenda in their own countries and also bringing attention to this global crisis. We are facing a major crisis in the public sphere of this world, really. Um, there are, climate change shouldn't be an extremely polarizing issue. It shouldn't be a partisan issue at all. I think we could all agree that this is about public goods provision. 
It's about basic human decency. It's about social justice. Uh, and it's about our environments and how people's lives and livelihoods in the future. And uh, our conversation needs to move beyond whether or not climate change is happening or if humans are causing climate change. Uh, our conversations in the political sphere has to be what solutions are we going to do or to, or to implement in order to solve this crisis. Um, but young people's participation are valuable in this sense because it brings the issue to the forefront. And now people are talking about it. It is an election issue, especially you know, in the past US election, climate change is a huge topic. It is a major issue in Canada, and we see the recent rise of uh, green policies in all major political parties, including the Conservative Party of Canada. Um, and young people will need to continue to, to march on the streets in a socially distant way to be able to ensure that this conversation continues to flow through and to make sure our politicians understand how important climate change is. But there is a very important advice uh, for a lot of the, the young activists uh, out there is that there is kind of a lack of nuance in our discourse about environmental protection and, and climate action. Climate change is not purely about science. It is scientific truth, but the discourse and the public policy of climate change is not purely about science. It's a comprehensive subject that involves knowledge from all kinds of different studies. It's about air composition. It's about climatic science. It, it is about how people in our society respond to it. It's about how nations collaborate and cooperate to, to solve this urgent crisis. It's related to our history as a species on Earth and remembering our mistakes, but also looking forward with an optimistic mindset. Uh, it's about hunger and death, and it's about opportunities and hope. We live in a new reality where the loudest voice garnered the most coverage and clicks, uh, while social media and traditional news alike keep pushing these boundaries of extremes. In an age of division and extreme, it requires a certain sense of nuance to, to figure out and solve the world's most pressing problems. Solving climate change requires this nuance and complexity and fighting fire with fire and fighting fury with fury would never help us to, to see common ground and explore the full potential as human beings to, to solve our collective problems. The, the key to solving global issues, any global issues through building bridges beyond national or ideological borders based on shared understanding and mutual respect. Uh, to truly understand that the diversity of thoughts and viewpoints lead us to making better decisions and more inclusive decisions. Um, people often say environmentalists are tree huggers, uh, that we care about saving the planet and our environment. Um, but the fact is climate change isn't new to our planets, uh, but civilization and human beings are. Um, so slowing down climate change isn't about saving our planet and our ecosystems they will always come back to the equilibrium uh, as they have always done so many times in our natural history. But humanity won't. Common action is about saving humanity's future, taking into consideration our limitations as species dependent on natural resources and the ecosystem that fosters intelligent life. Humans have always proven ourselves as incredibly adaptive species and our ingenuity is basically limitless. Um, 
And you know, a, a lot of the, the issues on, on climate action might depress a lot of people. The, the inability for politicians to reach consensus will inevitably push a few young people to the extreme, to the radical side of things. But we, we, but we, we have to remain hopeful that we could find common ground and we could solve this crisis. And uh, we, although we should never sugarcoat the magnitude and the urgency of this issue, uh, but we also cannot overlook the hopeful parts and the, the useful energy that's in this movement right now. Um, David Wallace-Wells wrote a book on the climate crisis. And in the concluding chapter, he wrote that if the planet was brought to the brink of climate catastrophe within a lifetime of a single generation, the responsibility to avoid it belongs with a single generation too. It is our responsibility, our collective responsibility to, to do something to solve the climate crisis. Thank you very much. Um, yes, it's definitely on us, on our actions for the change that we need. As you said, it's our future, right? It's about the intergenerational effects that we need to address as youth. Um, bring those issues to the forefront, putting pressure on our political sphere if needed. That's all on us to do. And as Jeffrey Anson as you've mentioned before in our previous question, it's not just about well, restating the climate change issue, right? But it's about how we will achieve it in an inclusive manner. It's not purely about science, as you said, it's about how socially we achieve these goals through collaboration, negotiations, like what you do right now, Jeffrey, um, and how we envision the world that we shape collectively. What will we do with the workers, as you previously mentioned, with their source of livelihoods, right? What are the implications for our economies, our public policies? How do we make sure that we take an inclusive approach in resolving these issues? That's all at stake right now. And it's all for us to see and reflect upon as youth, as not just a Canadian citizen or a Korean citizen, as I am a Korean citizen, but not just in our local context, but as a global citizen, right? It's important to reflect on what it means to act upon our responsibilities as a global citizen. I just want to say thank you to Jeffrey and Bowman for raising such excellent points in our last question, because those are really important discussions that we need to have, especially not just with youth, but with people of all ages. And Bowman and Jeffrey both stated it. It's not about just climate change activists working on this issue. It's about getting everyone to work on this issue because it affects people in your local communities um, and people all over the world. It's a global issue and it needs to be treated as such. So. That concludes our first ever podcast, and we'd like to say thank you to Jeffrey and everyone at BCCIC Climate Change for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be coming in January 2021. Give us a follow on Twitter where we discuss the SDGs and research on topics such as internal climate migration, like Jeffrey brought up earlier. We link those papers on our Twitter page, and our handle is at BCCIC Climate. Lastly, before you leave, We'd like to end this episode with an empowering quote for our audiences. Jeffrey, what would you like to tell our listeners to inspire them to be part of this global movement for change? Yeah, the spot like that. Uh, gosh. Well, I'd say the power of human ingenuity to solve collective issues is limitless. And never be afraid to step outside of your comfort zone to try new things and to join 
your community groups that are comic conscious and trying to advocate for greater comic action in your own community, in your own school, or in your own country. Um, collective issues must be solved by collective solutions. And it is up to every single one of us in a liberal democracy to participate in the public discourse uh, and solve public issues. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I certainly learned so much from you, Jeffrey. It's probably not just the audiences that's learning. I have learned so much as well. Um, we tend to think that it's only the decision makers that can make changes to the world we share. But no, right? We vote. Uh, we vote the decision makers. We perpetuate the ideas that the systems are systems that we support and we promote rest on. So it's all on us and we can make a change. And I think we've learned through this podcast that that's very possible, right? Um, so thank you everyone for listening. Have a lovely rest of the week. See you again soon. Bye.